Hello listeners and welcome to CMI's Peace Talks. I'm your host Antti Emmela, CMI's Communications Manager. In this show we look at the world through the lenses of peacemaking. We have conversations with both our own and other top experts on what it takes to build lasting peace in this unstable world situation. In the wise words of our founder, Nobel Peace Laureate Martti Ahtisaari, we believe that all conflicts can be resolved. This podcast is about how to do it. Digitalization and the rise of different social movements from Sudan to Iraq underline the need to make peace processes more democratic. In this context, ideas around how women representatives at official peace tables and their own communities can work together to advance peace remain strikingly underexplored. The topic is important as one reason why women's inclusion is seen to lead to more durable peace agreements are these linkages between women representatives and their constituencies. In this episode, we discuss concrete strategies to build these linkages with particular focus on the Middle East and North Africa. The episode is a part of a global conference that UN Women and CMI Martti Ahtisari Peace Foundation are co-hosting this July. The conference is entitled Gender Inclusive Peace Processes, Strengthening Women's Meaningful Participation Through Constituency Building. My guests today are Dr. Catherine Turner, who works as an associate professor at the Durham Law School, and Heba Zayan, the head of UN Women's sub-office in Gaza, and Kavgabal Taibani, the co-founder of the Women for Yemen Network. Great to have you all here with me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ante. Thank you very much, and glad to be here today. Good. Um, let's first hear what Johanna Boutanen, CMI's head of Women in Peacemaking team, has to say about today's topic and its importance. So the term of constituency building can be understood as as uh, strategies through which any actor builds and nurtures a support base. And in the context of peace processes, we can think of a constituency as a group of people whose interests are safeguarded and pursued by a representative in that given peace process. So as partners of CMI and UN Women, we observe that this issue and the ideas around constituency building remain strikingly underexplored in the field of peacemaking, including the, the many gender dimensions that are associated with it. And we really think that this conversation is timely. We see digital technology and nonviolent mass movements applying this democratizing pressure on formal peace processes, but the questions around legitimacy and accountability, they are becoming increasingly prominent. But at the same time, negotiated between parties to the conflict, it is quite rare that any peace process is fully democratized. So, um, and at the same time, we have to remember that scholars have found that one of the reasons why women's inclusion is correlated with more durable peace agreements relates exactly to the linkage between women signatories and women civil society groups as support base. So it's against this backdrop that CMI and UN Women are co-hosting this global conference entitled Gender Inclusive Peace Processes, Strengthening Women's Meaningful Participation Through Constituency Building. And the aim really is to explore good practices and strategies 
to advance constituency building and in that way to strengthen women's substantive representation and meaningful participation in peacemaking. So as we heard, um, Johanna emphasizes how the interaction between women representatives and their supporters, such as uh, women civil society groups, um, can um, democratize peace processes and create buy-in for more lasting agreements. However, it seems that this um, potential remains uh, largely untapped. Catherine, um, your work focuses on how peace negotiations can be made more inclusive. Well, what is your view on this? How can women representatives in informal peace processes build and nurture a base of um, support in their in their communities? Uh, yes, I think uh, this, this is one of the big questions uh, for women's participation. You know, we uh, we see in the research that there is evidence of, of women doing this and that this is one of the, the reasons for, for inclusion. Uh, but the research is less clear on exactly how uh, to do it. And so when we're talking about constituency building, uh, really we're talking about building political support from the ground up. Uh, and this has proved to be challenging for women who have participated, um, particularly in, from civil society platforms. And because women as a constituency is a very diverse group of people um, and, you know, they are divided across traditional conflict lines, um, politics, mm. religion, ethnicity in the same way as, as men are. So effective strategies will vary depending on the different roles um, that women are playing in talks. Um, and the strategies then uh, can be designed to work both within and across those political divides. So um, I think there's been uh, less focus perhaps on women from political parties or armed groups and the way in which they um, are expected to, to build constituencies and to reach out. Uh, but I think this is uh, really a, a very important uh, group to be focusing on uh, because often it's women within these constituencies uh, that, are, that are the most marginalised. For example, uh, here in Northern Ireland, a recent study was conducted with women from loyalist communities and a mass of 82% of them felt that they weren't represented by the mainstream political parties on their own side, if you like. And another 83% of them felt that they were never or nearly never asked their opinion on issues of concern to them. So, and these, you know, this is part of a, a negotiation, an ongoing negotiation of the terms of peace in Northern Ireland. So mm. we clearly have a gap between the local, uh, sort of the politics in the institutions and uh, the local politics uh, for the women on the ground. And mm. this, I think, is something that political parties need to think about how they address uh, and one of these, uh, one of the ways of doing these, one of the mechanisms can be through, for example, public meetings, consultative forums, um, places and spaces uh, that are designed to give uh, constituents and, and women particularly uh, space to uh, hear uh, politicians, to question them um, and to feed into the agenda of what are effectively the, the negotiators on, on their own side. Mm. Um, now, strategies will be different for women participating on a civil society platform, you know, for example, on advisory boards. Uh, they are trying to operate across these political cleavages um, and trying to build uh, and secure support for common platforms of, of women's rights. And so these strategies would include, um, for example, engagement with existing networks and civil society platforms. 
Um, mm. And we've seen from experience that strong grassroots activism uh, builds foundations for women's political mobilization, but that maintaining the connection between those two, between the grassroots activism and, and between the, the political um, elite talks is really, excuse me, is really crucial. Um, so mechanisms such as working groups and networks can help to maintain this. Um, and this helps to avoid then women who do participate in political talks from being seen as elite, for example, or from being seen as remote from broader women's activism, which can lead to challenges uh, to their work on the basis of representation. So it really depends on the constituency itself, what kind of um, supporters you're talking about and, and, and have these uh, sort of strategies um, accordingly. But you can find a few examples of effective strategies. That's right. Yeah. Yes, I think it's important that we look at strategies across different types of constituencies and don't just mm. assume that, that women are, are one uh, homogenous constituency uh, that, that can be spoken to in the same terms. The more differentiated we can be, the more chance we have to reach more women and, and more different types of women. Mm. That's right. So Heba, we, we're talking about um, uh, particularly um, in this episode, the, um, um, uh, the MENA region, so uh, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, where you have um, in the region several um, ongoing, um, long-lasting um, conflicts and where um, the uh, representation of women is, 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 is limited in, in, in many peace processes. So, um, Heba, in your experience, you have nearly 20 years of experience in, in promoting gender equality and, 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 and women's empowerment. Um, how do you see today's topic from, the, from Palestine's perspective? Well, what is your... What is your view? In Palestine, we have a very strong civil society. We have very strong women political leaders and feminist leaders that have been involved in uh, peace building efforts in the peace process since basically uh, Oslo Agreement, since Madrid Conference, even before that. So it's mm. not topic to Palestinian women. Their engagement was there right from the beginning, of course, when the PA as well was established uh, during the establishment of different Palestinian institutions. So you have, as exactly what Catherine mentioned, different constituencies, uh, different conversations, um, diverse capacities, uh, definitely very, very strong women gender advocates that have been there looking exactly at entry points similar to other women in the MENA region and perhaps globally to where they can influence uh, peace processes, they can influence women, peace and security or actually establish uh, the agenda in Palestine uh, uh, where they actually can, can, can achieve progress for all women on all fronts within the framework of the women, peace and security agenda. But of course, as I said, one key challenge is definitely that you don't have negotiations happening uh, mm. right as it relates to formal peace building. But that being said, it does not mean that different efforts are not taking place by women leaders and by civil society um, uh, activists uh, within the framework of uh, uh, women, peace and security. And that's why we have 
national action plan, the first national action plan on 1325, and then we have now the second national action plan, and uh, part of that is basically supporting uh, women's leadership and participation in decision-making, all levels, including, of course, uh, uh, formal peace building, but also including local peace building, which is very important as well, because um, different forms of participation also enable, if you will, uh, women leaders to reach uh, all women. And I fully agree with Catherine that women is definitely not a human, uh, a homogeneous group. You need yeah. intersectional understanding and approaches when you deal with, with basically women's, uh, women's inclusion, when you promote their inclusion, their participation and create space for, for, for more equitable participation. So basically, I think the connection, and it's a multifaceted challenge here that we have, at least in the context of Palestine, to highlight the connection between civil society leaders and uh, women in the different communities. We're talking about women farmers, women uh, women herders. We're talking about uh, women who are, uh, who are basically working, women who are not working. I mean, different groups of women or what usually called grassroots, and then creating proper linkages so that the, the, the discourse of the women's movement of civil society organizations active in peace building becomes uh, closer and literally represents the interests and priorities of all Palestinian women. So this is one challenge, having that connection working well is something that needs to, 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 be, to be definitely considered. But then again, connecting women in civil society organizations with women political leaders that have yeah. representation in political parties and that have voice, let's say, in different processes. That's a second layer of the same challenge. So basically what we have in Palestine sometimes, I wouldn't call it a, a situation of disconnect at all, but I would call it more a situation where translating, where translating needs and priorities of women bottom up it does not really seem something that's happening uh, in a quite um, quite an easy way where you can track and see progress um, um, when it comes to certain um, indicators and targets that relate to women's participation and inclusion in decision making and definitely when that relates to, to peace building processes. For instance, the Palestinian reconciliation, and that's more of an internal conflict issue. We've been seeing very, very few women participating in the formal talks of the Palestinian reconciliation uh, process. Uh, and that gives you an indicator that those connections between the different constituencies are not actually working in a way where you can reach the target of having women sit at the formal table of the reconciliation. Of course, we've spoken already of the, the peace process not, not being currently uh, functioning. So that's a challenge, but I think there is a lot of capacity and work that has been going, is being done with clear targets, clear objectives, to, to um, as much as possible be able to, 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 to influence uh, those processes and make them gender inclusive and responsive. Mm. So maybe my question here is how to uh, create these linkages between, let's say, uh, civil society actors and the women politicians um, who are present at, more present at the formal, formal tables. Uh, what kind of concrete strategies do you have in, in place to build these linkages? I uh, thank you, definitely. I mean, the political parties is a very important entry point. 
Like you have to really understand exactly those actors that exist in the political space. And then I think there has been uh, much done already by several society organizations and women political leaders themselves to use the quota principle in Palestine, 30% representation mm. in political parties. So that's something that has been applied in certain political parties, less so in others, but the, basically the concept is there. You've, we've had lobby groups, advocacy and lobbying groups, caucuses, dialogue, etc. women's leaders who actually have representation inside the political party. But then you go into the details of this, and then you see also when it comes to, uh, let me say, I don't know, strategic decisions mm. are made by the political party, high-level decisions. And then it feels sometimes that the challenge is that the work that's done on the ground to make the political uh, parties uh, gender equitable uh, it does not translate uh, in um, this space of decision making, meaning sometimes either women's voices or representation or leadership is compromised for within or during certain political processes. I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but basically you feel that in terms of rhetoric, in terms of theory, definitely there is interest, there is focus, etc. But at a certain point, then you have certain talks or dialogues or reconciliation talks, and then you do not see that basically in action. So you don't see the political party nominating one of the women leaders to be part, for instance, of the formal delegation. And then you have to ask yourself, then why? So basically, in mm. terms of tactics, uh, of course, why that's also a bit of a, a very serious, um, uh, a bit of a complex, maybe not serious question, where you actually mm. look at issues of, um, again, how politics work, etc. Then you also look at the other party as well when it comes to, 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 to conflict resolution, etc. So there are different determinants that, that I think that uh, challenge that. But let me say that definitely dialogue is important. Uh, um, having um, a con advocating uh, continuously is important. Changing uh, certain structures, systems, bylaws, um, etc., within either the political party or within the government to to basically uh, increase the possibility of participation is very important. Having capacities in place, building the capacities of women leaders uh, 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 and a new generation of feminist leaders is very important because actually what we have in Palestine and I think in other countries in the MENA region, you do have some sort of a generational gap and mm. you have some sort of an, an accusation of an elite discourse of the women's leaders specifically women peace and security leaders saying that this does not connect to 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 um, um, uh, women does not represent women women on the ground or women in, in in marginalized communities don't understand what we're talking about they don't see themselves being represented and that's exactly the topic of today how do we basically create those linkages where Again, something like that, like 1325 or like political participation uh, at the highest level does make sense 
to um, a woman in a village who's 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 challenged by 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 so many so many issues, um, you know, um, having you know her livelihood, her participation, perhaps in a in a in a small local council in her village, etc. So creating those linkages is very important. So I think having again a new generation that understands uh, new tools and that's close or closer to the community is important and uh, there are so many tactics that can definitely be be used and have been used in palestine and maybe have been exhausted in palestine and in other countries but again we have things that work against uh, against some of those efforts because when people actually ask um, ask questions that relate to progress when it comes to gender equality women's empowerment uh, when it comes to peace and security or women peace and security honestly we have to also understand the environment and the context and when it does work against you we're we're not talking in a, in a, in a more of a stable context where you have your targets and you're 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 actually being basically pushed back by, in the case of Palestine, of course, protracted conflict, humanitarian crisis, occupation, et cetera, et cetera, that, that it keeps becoming um, quite difficult uh, to achieve the aspired uh, progress. Mm, I see. So, Kabkab, um, if we then move to Yemen, as said at the beginning, you are the co-founder of uh, Women yes. for Yemen, a civil society group that works to strengthen women's role in, in, in peacemaking. So in Yemen, women's participation in the official peace process has been has been low. Uh, my question is, what kind of linkages are there between the few women representatives and and civil society groups such as such as yours? How do you see this? Yeah, um, actually, it's not even low. It's very extremely low. So, mm. um, and um, Yemeni women are uh, facing huge challenge challenge to be at the peace table or even at the decision maker making level like you see for the first time in 20 years women are absent from uh, the new formed cabinet though all all parties who formed this cabinet were able to nominate women in there so we are facing um, as the war continues we realize that women political presence decreases and the few women who are now at the peace table, or let's say the few women who are at the decision-making level, they are connecting with civil society. They're trying to push for more inclusion for women, but it's not more of an individual support or push. It seems like it's there is an institutional gap. And as you know, the war in Yemen is, is attacking, or let's say there is like um, um, a, a poor, or let's say a weak presence of, of the state um, mm -hmm. the govern the governance so women are not present in decision making and with time we see women are the the time passed with this war we see less women there and if we want to talk about um linkages um it, it, there seems like there is a gap between connecting between all tracks so um if we want to talk about the scene in yemen how it is um, how it is and how it looks like. There is a vibrant uh, feminist women movement in feminist peace movement in 
in Yemen, and it is very strong. And there is like a strong support from uh, women-led organizations who are working on the ground. They're working on peace components. They're working on local levels. They're mm. walking um, through with local councils. They're trying to push for important peace components into the peace. But there is a did there is a deadlock, like or say a wall that we always like coming to it when we want to push further or we want um it's like we as Yemeni women we are the carriers of the peace let's say the prerequisites issues for peace for sustainable peace and even mm. those who are inside they don't have let's say um um the full uh, let's say legitimacy to uh, support the inclusion for inclusion of women, and we say kind of failure from either the Yemeni government or other uh, conflict parties to include women from their parts. So um, the the connection is is not about only the women inside there. No, there has to be more um, institutional work to be done. And um, I believe from my, my work and through the work we have, we're doing in our network is that there is a strong grassroots movement, but it is not fully connected to the decision making. And mm. what we should do is that we should connect those women on the ground to those who are uh, to the um, to those who are on the table. We should push the um, the push what they are. Uh, pushing for like you know releasing detainees, building trust um, measures, and all of these topics that those like women on the ground are doing, and they also work for you know providing health uh, emergency for people. They were the first respondents um, respondents for COVID, for example. So mm. all of this it has to be channeled through support um, to decision makers, but. Um, with, with war, the difficulty is that you have a masculinity uh, masculinity mindset that it seems like women, what they're trying to advocate for is working towards inclusive peace. And what, what those who are already like controlling or dominating the peace processes are looking for, you know, gains or interest either for themselves as, as a conflict party or for the regional powers or the international powers who are uh, dominating the Yemeni context. Hmm. So uh, a lot remains to be done in in in, yes. in order to sort of um, create these connections with the with the formal representatives and, and the civil society. Yes. But is there more you can do? What what kind of um, strategies yes. you can you you could implement? Yeah, when when you like when I when I first see the digitalization and I see what are you talking about, I believe mm. that what what the Yemeni Yemeni what the Yemeni feminist movement have done so far, they have created platforms through digital media. They have created, let's say, they strategically uh, supported their movement with two things. First, they created a platform because they don't have a platform, they don't have party political party to support them. And the other side, they create allies. So with this, they gain more power and they were smart in doing this and they were able to push more for their presence. There was like uh, a lot of advocacy campaigns for a, for a Yemeni peace uh, uh, activist or those organizations mm. to support women's inclusion in peace or to uh, ask or call for inclusion in, in for, for women in, in, in you know, uh, the new established government and so on so um 
um, what what the Yemeni woman is trying to do, despite the the big failure from from the uh, from the decision makers or let's say the stakeholders, if we want to be more diplomatic, it's um, is that they create their own platform by themselves, and they try to show and they try to create uh, unity now. And what they sh- what we should do more is that we need to work in, on on the priorities of the peace after war, and we have to continue advocate for that and because at one day the war will end and we need to be prepared but the women are already working on on you know responding to all the um, consequences of conflict but also i think there has to be more work to be done from our side to work in on uh, the priorities that uh, for peace uh, after the war is being done or finished mm. Yes, uh, we are going to talk a, a bit more about um, digital means uh, later on in, in, in the epi- episode. But um, I think we could now move to to the question of 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 sort of um, of the support base, um, Catherine. My question is 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 um, how does active contact and communication with these uh, constituencies affect um, uh, constituencies or, or supporters themselves, including their views of a peace process and the legitimacy of it, its outcomes. How do you see this? Well, I think it's exactly as as Heba said there, that what we're talking about here is the question of representation. You know, um, in what ways do uh, grassroots communities and do uh, women who are uh, living in in local communities or active in in their own communities, how do they see their priorities uh, represented by those who are participating in talks or who are um, in decision making uh, positions? And I mean, the question of, of representation is, is fundamental to a political system and so no less so to, to peace talks. You know, uh, representation brings with it accountability um, in terms of letting people see who's shaping the negotiating agenda and, uh, and where those items are coming from. Um, and then the belief in being represented itself um, helps to generate broader support for talks um, and crucially then for the decisions that are reached there. Um, but I um, listening to Kokab there talking about this gap um, and the, the wall that, that women tend to meet whenever they try to push that little bit further. And so I think what we see is that um, often the, the question of representation will come down to the individual credibility of, of women themselves. And as we know, there are very, very small numbers of women who are managing to get into high level decision making uh, positions in, in peace talks or in, in kind of implementation phases as well. And um, these women themselves, even to get there, have had to be very effective negotiators, very effective politicians, and they've had to be able to establish you know, strong bases of support. And often women are able to do this across uh, boundaries, you know, so beyond their own political power bases, for example. Um, and so, as I said, the most kind of successful uh, women are those who've managed to uh, transcend that um, and to secure support um, from, from across political divides and to, uh, to address that sense of disconnect. But again, I think another uh, really important point that was reached, uh, sorry, that was raised there is is the difference between women participating, women being there and women being able to make any meaningful change on what's being decided and on on the institutional priorities. 
Um, because although we do see women sort of being better placed or, or more willing to engage with civil society, to engage with grassroots constituencies, um, mm. they themselves can be well regarded. They themselves have the potential to be exceptional in that regard. But there are really are limits as to how far individual or small numbers of women are going to be able to challenge party lines, for example. And I think that we have to acknowledge that, that this, this gap doesn't go away simply by uh, putting women in, in these positions um, where even if they themselves um, are bringing different uh, views or, or different ways of thinking about the problems, that they're constrained by uh, what, what party structures are willing to do, what institutional structures are, are willing to accommodate, for example. Um, and so the, while we have very small numbers of, of women, this is always going to be a challenge in terms of where they interface with the vested interests, as Kolkab has said, where they um, interface with kind of the broader conflict dynamics and, and what change is, is possible and what's not. Mm. Heba, how do you how do you see this question? I think um, I fully agree with Catherine. I mean, it is definitely a question of representation, and it is a question of understanding. Um, and again, coming together. To be honest, because basically, I think at least in in, in Palestine, I think some of the challenges uh, do relate to also male dominance uh, sometimes over either political parties or uh, uh, political processes or political thinking. And if it's not male dominance, at least what the processes are telling us is that they do, in a way, sometimes exclude women from, uh, from strategic uh, and important processes where they can make influence. And this in itself does not also match um, um, basically, the, of course, does not match the contributions of women in society to all, basically, sectors, to their, to, to, to building societies, to institutions, to, so some way, somehow, you do feel that the, this big challenge, um, this particular challenge is quite, uh, is quite one of the biggest, where you don't feel that, uh, basically, women get a chance to uh, represent um, uh, other women to represent the concerns and priorities of uh, women in the, the different communities, and this uh, does lead to that that the majority of, um, uh, in this case, uh, uh, processes uh, that exclude women are gender blind and do not, of course, uh, uh, basically um, contribute to uh, to changing uh, the context of women um, in Palestine. We need to show definitely that that uh, once you have again, uh, women in political processes that are very close to the communities, that are close to civil society organizations, that have the interests also of um, all society members, basically, at heart, um, having that level of representation, that this produces different outcomes for the society as a whole. Yes. As mentioned earlier here, um digitalization and the rise of different social movements uh, put pressure to make um, these peace processes more more democratic um, what is your view view on this these sort of uh, tendencies um, is there potential for for more democratic peace processes how do you see this Kavbab, um, yes would you, do, like do you to mean digitalization in terms of how they will like democratize the peace processes that's right. Yeah, that's right. So um, yeah. how can different uh, digital means, tools be used to uh, 
sort of uh, increase inclusion, yes. for example, of a peace process? Yeah, digitalization actually allows allows people to have a voice, and this is part of what this democracy is for. So, um, um, di digitalization provide women with the voices, with the the platform, they're able to uh, show their voices and put their uh, concerns. So, a lot of issues that we feel like we have to speak about, to speak up about them, we were able to do this through, uh, you know, the the let's say the digital media. So, um, and in in addition, we were able to, as I mentioned earlier, it was like we were able to have a platform and also we we have allies we have allies from international community we have allies from uh local from national level and in addition women movement on the grassroots from uh what we have seen so far they have already allies from local uh, level but when we talk about how they want to push for their cases because apparently they need they need to uh, to push back against the push, so they need to uh, work um, to to put their um, you know demands in the agenda. So um, digitalization has supported us to democratize to 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 uh, amplify our voices, and thus it was a way to democratize because um, our our demands mostly are are for the inclusive peace. And we want, um, you know, the peace in order to happen. And we think since, for example, when we talk about representation, it is a sign. It is, um, as I mentioned earlier, that with as the war continues, women's um, presence decline. So this is a concerning trend for inclusive peace um, later, because uh, when women are not, were not uh, present at the peace table or at, at making the peace decisions, this will impact the peace later and also will impact their ability to voice the dem their demands and what they want uh, or what their concerns or what are the issues that they have to be included in order to achieve uh, sustainable peace. Mm -hmm. Heba, how do, you, how do you see this from uh, Palestine's perspective? Let's say um, social media, in which way social media can be um, uh, can be um, used in, in, in order to create some maybe buy-in um, from the larger society? I mean, definitely, uh, social media is now very important. Uh, what's also called citizenship journalism, also using uh, social media for um, different uh, platforms is important because exactly as Kaukeb said, it does give people uh, a, a voice. Uh, and um, a space to express themselves. Many of those are activists, many of those are young activists. Uh, of course, in Palestine, some of them uh, uh, use it for um, um, pushing um, um, different uh, important uh, issues, including the issue of participation. We've seen that in Palestine uh, when we had the decision around elections. Unfortunately, that did not go through, but we've seen a lot of young voices, men and women, uh, speaking about the importance of having women participate in elections as candidates, also as voters. So you've seen many young activists using social media to highlight those concepts, which of course reach uh, a much larger audience than the typical uh, um, 
basically uh, actors in the field sometimes, which also use social media. And I think that this is some sort of observation that um, we've we've discussed before inside at least uh, the UN Women team, that you would see certain influencers or bloggers, many of them are women, actually reaching uh, um, uh, um, through Twitter or other, other, uh, other means, basically uh, uh, so many people, so many also young people. And I think this is important when it comes to opinion shaping, opinion making, um, you know, uh, sharing some positive, uh, um, in many cases, um, ideas, etc., etc. So we've also, of course, seen what happened in Palestine in 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 uh, in the last uh, couple of months, and we've seen also how social media was used to bring attention to some of the most emerging issues, including what happened in Al Sheikh Jarrah, where young activists were speaking uh, very actively and being interviewed by so many news channels uh, about the situation in Palestine, they became the voice of the people. Many of them have the tools, they speak English, etc. They have conceptual clarity. So uh, they've, they've assumed a role of an activist, like journalist, slight political leader, because some forms can definitely be looked at as political activism, active political participation and trying to reach beyond the local borders of your area, of your village, of your city to a bigger audience about things that matter to you. And that's definitely some sort of activism. Many, of course, have uh, basically highlighted the situation politically on the ground, has asked for solutions. And we've seen also based on that youth groups forming, etc., men and women, speaking about, about uh, the situation in Palestine and how it impacts them and how they see that uh, that uh, conflict uh, should be resolved. And that's definitely, um, again, some very active role using uh, digital means or social media to uh, take an active part in, uh, in a situation or at least posing an opinion regarding, regarding uh, a conflict that touches upon your life and definitely uh, many lives uh, inside your community. Catherine, how you see this? Is is there a change in the air, so to speak? We have uh, accelerated uh, digitalization um, by the um, COVID um, uh, pandemic, and then we have the rise of different social movements um, altogether. Is it fair to say that this put more pressure to make peace processes more democratic? How do how, how do you see this? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree completely with Heba there, where she's um, talking about the, the benefits of uh, social media uh, for, for activism, particularly, um, both at the global policy level in, in relation to the need for women, peace and security, and also for those um, trying to get messages out from their own uh, politics and from their mm. own home, um, home regions. Um, and it's interesting for me to watch because, um, uh, you know, our peace press process in Northern Ireland happened before we had all of these tools available. And so uh, I'm watching the development of this now and, and the way it's shaping political interaction with, with some interest. And I mean, as I say, I think there's no doubt that it has been a really important tool for activism. It's helped people to, to get information out, to build alliances and, and to try and um, highlight what's happening and the importance of inclusion, for example. Mm. I think, uh, you know, I think I'm also mindful of some of the risks of this in terms of whether or not it's, uh, it, you know, it advances democratization um, across the board. 
I mean, often what we see is that uh, social media isn't representative of majority politics within a, an area. Um, sometimes what we're seeing is only really the polls of the very uh, liberal on the one end and, and very populist um, on the other end of the spectrum. And that can create sort of false impressions uh, of the extent of feeling in the population more generally. Um, there's the risk uh, on top of that then of, of deliberate campaigns of disinformation um, and, uh, you know, sort of alliance building as a tool of conflict escalation rather than as a tool for good. And the, the risks of manipulating political stories, creating and, and deliberately setting out to create grievance and trying to uh, to uh, derail initiatives um, through through that. Uh, I think more practically as well, one thing I've noticed um, are the risks of digital exclusion, um, particularly in a context of uh, if we've got uh, great economic inequalities or inequalities that impact women's access uh, to digital spaces, to technologies, um, even access to resources and education to be able to engage in and, and fully understand activism in, in the digital sphere. And I think this has been revealed quite starkly through the pandemic, you know, as women's organisations have tried to keep women connected uh, during periods of restriction, uh, that we see gaps opening up in terms of who has access to this sphere. Um, and the most important point, I think, to note, though, is that uh, increasingly what we're we're understanding is that women face dreadful abuse online and particularly on social media. And this is something that, that we need to take into account when we think of how digital uh, and social media fit into strategies for inclusion uh, and how much um, we expose women to risk on in digital platforms and through social media. You know, so we're starting to see now the connections between abuse on, on social media and women's participation, the way in which uh, abuse is used and particularly sexist and misogynistic abuse is used um, uh, to discredit women, to silence them, to drive them off digital platforms. Uh, the, way, the way in which these platforms can be uh, created to deliberately target and threaten women. So the creation of social media groups publishing information ab about where women live, about their families, and implicit invitations to attack women. And, and we're seeing really concerning um, rise in, in attacks against women leaders in, in peace processes across the world. You know, and social media and digital platforms enhance the ability of, uh, of people to do that where they want to do it. And these appear to be particularly gendered risks, I think, um, that aren't experienced by men in the same way. And so if we're going to push for increased reliance on digital or, or online interaction, um, then we need to also uh, be very mindful of the risks that we expose women to by doing that and the risks of uh, sort of dampening women's participation where they feel that exposure on, on social media is simply too much. Mm. But do you see more more potential on 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 this you know, sort of how to use digital um, tools to enhance interaction between women representatives and their their supporters than the sort of dangerous side of things. I mean, undoubtedly, I think that there are benefits, you know, and, and we're seeing, for example, really um, strong platforms emerging here in, in Northern Ireland um, mm. around engaging with uh, sort of engaging online with political parties and in public forum, then requiring them to engage with the um, with. Uh, excluded voices. So uh, we have an initiative uh, that the survey I referred to earlier was carried out by an initiative called Her Loyal Voice. And the mm. point of that has been to use these tools to bring evidence-based policy and, and advocacy to politicians in social media and, and to require them then to um, 
to engage with them. And I think my point around the risks of it is simply that we see its benefits. But for women, we, we need to be mindful that we develop our strategies in terms of digital inclusion and in, in terms of supporting women to be active and to use digital strategies, mindful um, of this, this, the uh, gender specific risks that they um, are likely to be exposed to as a result of engaging in, in the online space. Mm. Yes. So I think we can we can conclude here with the with the last question and it it's a, obviously a big one. Um, so um, is to ask uh, is is nurturing these um, relationships between women representatives and their their own supporters constituencies so to speak one of the keys to more inclusive peace processes and and, and better peace deals. How do you how do you see this? All three um, um, Heba maybe you would like to start. Thank you. Definitely, definitely. That goes without saying. It's very important to have this this uh, this connection, to have to have a dialogue, to have a common understanding as much as possible, to um, have uh, those who um, are there, uh, women who are there in um, in basically uh, peacemaking efforts, formal or informal very well informed of the needs and priorities uh, and aspirations basically of all women in the community and to have them represent that and uh, um, as much as possible be able to transform as we've already mentioned those processes to become better inclusive Gab, Gab, how do you how do you see this question I agree with Hiba. It's very important and it's actually one of the cornerstones for any successful peace processes is to build a good relationship with all with those who are um, the women representatives with their constituencies. Because um, um, with peace, you need to have strong ties, you need to connect, to have strong connection and network. So this is um, this is a very fundamental like concept. We need to uh, keep it uh, strong and life when we are working in peace. Catherine, any final thoughts on this? No, absolutely. I agree about the, the connection um, and the, the question of uh, representation. So um, the, the idea that political talks happen in a space that's completely removed um, from the politics of what's happening in local communities from what's happening on the ground, I think is is outdated. And, and the question of uh, representation and the question of how we build up those effective alliances uh, between women who are participating in talks um, and between the constituencies that they represent is, is really a, a key one that, that we should be looking at. So thank you uh, very much, all three, for this very uh, fruitful um, discussion. I think this has given a lot of food for thought um, and, and has been highlighting the importance of, of, of creating um, and building interaction between women representatives in, 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 at the formal peace tables and their, their own um, supporters, constituencies, so to speak. Um, um, enabling uh, um, more inclusive peace processes and, and, and better better peace deals as well. So thank you very much, all three. Um, thank you. Thank you. So thank much. you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to CMI's Peace Talks with Antti Ammela. 
If you like our show, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. You can also send us feedback and propose topics to discuss via social media, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or by sending email to comms at cmi.fi. Thank you.